Perfection is a funny thing. Impossible to achieve, but that doesn't stop people trying. And that's especially true for ballerinas, who may carry in their heads an ideal of ineffable grace, even though imperfect human bodies won't play ball. I'm David Jays, and this is Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. And my guest today is the Australian ballerina Leanne Benjamin, who did battle with her sense of perfection throughout her outstanding career and came closer to achieving it than most. Leanne's career took her from rural Queensland to the heights of the Royal Ballet in London. She not only conquered the great 19th century ballets, but had an uncanny instinct for challenging modern work, the complex stories of Kenneth Macmillan, who she knew and worked with, and recent classics by Wayne McGregor and Christopher Wheeldon. Leanne stayed at the top of her game throughout her 40s, only retiring from the Royal Ballet at 49. And in that final decade, she was shiveringly fierce and intense. It was as if the anxiety about achieving perfection had evaporated, freeing her to shoot like an arrow into the dark heart of the works she danced. Now, Leanne revisits her career in a revealing new memoir, Built for Ballet, written with the arts journalist Sarah Crompton. I want to know how she has taken the hard-won lessons from her career into a newfound love of coaching, including of young dancers in the RAD's Fontaine International Ballet Competition. And here at Why Dance Matters, we love to hear about dancers' pets. And I suspect Leanne may have the best ballet pet ever. Leanne Benjamin, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Thank you so much, David. And I've been thinking about your amazing career. I've been reading your wonderful memoir, Built for Ballet, which I've so enjoyed and has taught me a lot about the life of a dancer. Things that I perhaps should have known, but came as a wonderful surprise. And we will get into some of them. But the first question I just have to ask you. It's a big one because I couldn't quite tell if this was a joke you were playing as an Australian on gullible non-Australians. Is it true that when you were growing up, you had a pet kangaroo? It is true, David. I was very, very lucky. Amazing. Yeah, my father had brought home a baby kangaroo that was found on the road. His mother was killed. He actually brought it home as a family pet for my sister and I. We had a beautiful big garden at the back where my incredible cubby house sat. So the kangaroo had ample opportunity to hop and skip around before disaster struck. Oh, yes, you mentioned the disaster. I, I think this early on in the podcast, should we just say for sensitive listeners that the kangaroo didn't make it into old age and leave it there? No, the kangaroo didn't. I'm not willing to let the kangaroo go just yet. You don't take a kangaroo for walks, do you? Or do you? 
No, no. That's the first time I've ever been an osteopath. I love their imagination. <laughs> it's only the big questions here. <laughs> exactly. No, we didn't. It happily stayed at the back in our garden, chomping on the long grass. That's a nice image. Let's leave the kangaroo there in an eternal happy chomping moment. So you grew up in Rockhampton in Queensland, which is, I now know, the beef capital of Australia. Not the ballet capital. So was it an unusual thing for you to be taking dance classes from a really young age? Or was there a lot of different sorts of cultural activity going on? I think it was unusual that my mother enrolled my sister and I for ballet lessons. My sister was five and I was three years old. I can't believe it. She saw an advertisement in the paper for a school, Jan Moore School of Dancing, and my mother thought it would be great for our deportment. She was also concerned that in our city there wasn't much culturally going on. There was a lot of sport and there were fairs and everything outdoorsy. But she did want us to grow up being ladies and well-educated. I went along at age three to my back to this little lesson on a Saturday morning. I was the tiniest little girl of three as well, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And by the age of four, I had made my first performance in Gosh. the Municipal Theatre in Rockhampton, singing and dancing. From the way you talk about it, it sounds as if you were immediately really happy on stage, that that was just your element. Is that how it felt? It did. I made my first appearance at age four. I don't even remember anything about it, which meant that I was not traumatised in any way. From the moment I hit that stage singing animal crackers in my soup, <laughs> I think I thought growing up that I was the new Shirley Temple. And, and funnily enough, David, that was where I was most happiest, singing, dancing, performing. It was never in my mind as I grew up to ever contemplate being a beautiful, serene ballerina. I had none of the qualities of it. I was far too adventurous, <laughs> precarious and naughty. And you mentioned just before that your sister, your older sister Madonna, was also taking lessons. And of course, she became a professional dancer too. And in some ways, it sounds as if her personality might have been a more obvious fit for a ballerina. Oh, definitely, David. She was a very obvious fit for ballet, in my opinion. She was always on time. <laughs> she was very studious and she was also a lover of the art form of ballet. And that's something that I never considered when I was dancing. For me, dancing was about enjoyment. It was about physicality. It was about discipline and it was about telling a story. And for her, it was about the aspiration of being a ballerina like Margot Fontaine. I never knew anything about ballerinas or that it was even really a profession. Because the other weird thing, and it's probably common to a lot of dancers, is that you start classes super young, but you don't actually see a performance until you're already quite well into that learning the art. That's right. Well, I never considered a profession as a ballerina until I was at least 14. And before that, I was dancing because of the physicality and because of the enjoyment. And 
I really learned the love of dance for myself before I actually saw a performance or knew anything about the history of ballet. It's an interesting entry point, isn't it, into the profession that then shapes your life? What helped with that scenario is that every day I was just doing something that I loved to do. Every day I was just chipping away, improving and practising, making my grades for my Royal Academy of Dancing exams. Oh, yes. Um, learning my little made-up solos in the studio to then perform on my tiny little stage or my larger stage in Rockhampton. So I think it was a perfect way to really enable dance to get into my body organically. Your teacher, your RAD teacher, was Valeria Hansen, I think, and sounds like a combination you kind of respond to really well throughout your career as you're talking about it. Someone who is quite firm, very demanding, but not cruel, not unpleasant, doesn't make you feel small. That's right. I think that's a great way to be a teacher. I think most children do like someone to direct them and to tell them what to do, but with a very kind and firm hand. And I feel that works for all generations. Yes. And of course, you'll be aware, you'll have read all the same stories and, and, and known them from the inside as well, about stories from major ballet companies, major ballet schools, where that balance, that kindness hasn't been the norm, where there have been people who have taught via humiliation, via kind of making people feel as if they're not good enough. And it's, do you think that's finally on the way out? I definitely think that's on the way out. I know that it's definitely not there at the Royal Ballet anymore. And in a, a, most companies that I visit and put ballets on now, I don't know about all companies, but I do believe that training methods have changed and softened and it's all part of evolution with, with all of us. You know, now people are taking into consideration that it's not just how good you are or pushing the boundaries physically, but how far you can push the boundaries mentally. And that's something I'm very, very aware of as a teacher for young kids and as a coach at the Royal Ballet. Yeah. And is it fair to say that you were quite perfectionist as a dancer? Yes, very much. Right. And is that a good thing? I think it is if you can get to the positive side of being a perfectionist. The, right. the detrimental side of being a perfectionist is that you can wind yourself up and become very, very nervous. And when you're overly nervous, it can, um, it can ruin your performance because you don't feel that freedom and the breath through your body. You know, I talk about the fact that if you were, just a little technical point I will give you here, if I was dancing Swan Lake and I was very, very nervous, I may do a turn or a pose or a position and it may not work. But if I was doing the same step in a Kenneth Macmillan ballet, I guarantee I would have had absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. And that's just mentally freeing yourself up with what you believe in for yourself, what you believe you can do as a dancer and as an artist. That is amazing. So different sorts of ballets, you'd put yourself under different kinds of pressure. Oh, absolutely. I put myself under horrendous pressure for the classics. Yes. 
Giselle is one of those roles that sort of haunts your career, both as one in which you have huge success from a really early age, but which you don't seem to feel truly comfortable in until actually much later in your career. Yes, and I think um, this is something that dancers have to consider. The expression does resonate with an artist that you're only as good as your last performance. Right. And if your first performance of something was at the age of barely turning 18 at Covent Garden Opera, (laughs) where you were so well-trained and at the peak of physical fitness as a wonderful graduate of the Royal Ballet School, you're always going to wonder if your next performance and the performances after are as good as the performance that I danced at Covent Garden on that wonderful day in July in 1982. (laughs) Right, yes. I had to think about that. (laughs) Tell anybody. Absolutely. No one's listening. It's fine. (laughs) While you were at the Royal Ballet School, you took part in the Royal Academy of Dance Jenny ballet competition, international ballet competition, huge deal. Um, It's now called the Fontaine. But that was interesting reading about that because that seemed to be one of your first encounters with nerves rather than, you know, tiny Leanne who just capered around on stage singing Animal Crackers. It felt as if that was one of those moments where the occasion hit you as you were going to be going on. And I just wondered what you remember about that and whether nerves help a performance? Look, I think it can. I think it's about how you deal with the nerves. And, you know, I say this to the dancers today. Don't let anybody say to you, don't be nervous, because of course you're going to be nervous. But it's about the way you deal with those nerves. Funnily enough, usually when I hit the stage, all the nerves had disappeared. It was all the pre-thought. And I think kids have so much help today with seeing psychologists and all sorts of people that help them with their mindset as well as their physicality, and I'm all for that. But I think what I remember about that day, David, of the Adeline Jenny, is that suddenly I had gone from the small stages in Rockhampton. There I was going to perform on this very famous stage, Sadler's Well Theatre, and I was being judged by some of the most iconic ballerinas and ex-dancers where so many incredible dancers have performed before me. And I was also (laughs) delighted and impressed and very nervous and very excited about the fact that I was going to have Pamela May, David Wall, Phyllis Bedells and Margot Fontaine judging me on that particular day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? That's a pretty much an an all-time great panel, isn't it, of judges? It's a great panel of judges. What was interesting is that I look back at that time and I see these incredible dancers who became great educators. Margot was so interested in setting up and helping and being the president of the Royal Academy of Dance. You know, Pamela May was a great dancer. She also taught me. And David Wall, which you will hear about in my book, also coached me back 
before I was to join the Royal Ballet many years later. All of these wonderful dancers stroke coaches have weaved their way through my life. It's that thing about passing it on, isn't it, that's so vital in the history of ballet. You can't just teach yourself from books. You can't just teach yourself from YouTube. You do need that human presence of someone who's been there, who has stood literally in your shoes and knows what that feels like. That's right. And of course, there are many great teachers that have not hit those heights and danced the most incredible roles, centre stage. But when you are taught by someone who has danced the role or who has been choreographed by that particular choreographer, you know, it really is hand-to-hand, foot-to-foot. It's really that passing down. And you feel very confident when you're being coached by someone who's had to get up themselves and perform that particular role because you know... They know what it's like physically and they know what it's like psychologically and they know every single nuance there is to dance that particular role. And what is it that you want from them as a dancer? Because presumably by the time you're a principal at the Royal Ballet, you know, the technique is pretty much down. Is it an insight into the character? Is it a different way of of approaching a tricky moment? What What is it that you're asking from them? It's everything. (laughs) You know, I want to make sure that they are keeping the integrity of the choreography. That's really important to me. Unless they have an injury or there is a reason why they are unable to execute a step. Secondly, it's about after teaching the role, if, if it's, say, a debut, it's about teaching the role and then it's about building that character. Yeah. And thirdly, it's about looking at every single individual that is standing in front of me and making sure that I look at them with a complete new canvas every time someone walks into that room. It's an extraordinary bond between coach and dancer and one that I absolutely relish and one that I I, I think I hit myself daily at the moment because (laughs) I love it so much, but... I never thought that I would be a teacher. I feel that I can give back and that I am a good coach to these dancers for all sorts of reasons. I did dance the role. I didn't um, make the decision when I retired that I would naturally become a, a teacher or a coach because I didn't think I fit the bill because I thought I would be too much of a perfectionist in my approach to the dancers because that's what I was to myself and I didn't want to pass that on and make them feel they had to be perfect because I realize now perfect is overrated we don't want perfect. <laughs> what we want is living and breathing life through that performance if you worry too much about the perfectionism of the execution of the steps it takes away the extra oomph something that the audience sees something about the character and If something comes from the inside of the dancer, you are going to enjoy it much more as an artist and as an audience member, we will really notice that that is what you are doing. I was going to ask whether it was easy to coach a role you danced when you'd previously thought about it in terms of your interpretation, but actually it sounds as if you really enjoy helping other people find their path through a 
a ballet, even if it ends up being quite different to the one you took? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for. There are to be no carbon copies when I coach these dances. I mean, of course, there'll never be a carbon copy of anybody else anyway, because physically, mentally, personality-wise, they're always going to execute the same step in a totally different way. But what I'm looking for as a coach is not just to work on the technique and the character, but to bring out maybe something that they haven't found before in themselves. It is a real privilege being able to sit in the front of the studio and, and help these artists because I remember that's what I yearned for so much as an artist right to the end of my career. I didn't want any letting up. I didn't like it when my coach didn't correct me because they thought maybe I was good enough. I always wanted a comment, good or bad, just something to make me think. Because I think if you've got something going on in your head or if you've got a little bit of a story or a reasoning about why you're doing something, then it really will affect your performance in a very, very positive way. And I guess if there's no change that could possibly happen, nothing you could do differently, in a way the performance is dead, isn't it? It's, it's fixed. Oh, absolutely. And as you know, David, with all art, nothing is ever fixed. <laughs> and anyone thinks that they are fixed or finished or that they are perfect, well, we all know that doesn't make a great artist. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that changed in your career was you had a child in your 30s and then came back to performance. What I remember from being in the audience at that time was how you seemed able to go to darker places, to deeper places, especially in those Kenneth Macmillan ballets that you were really your signature roles really complicated, difficult stories, Manon and Myling and different drummer. And something seemed to have released you to be fearless. I don't know if that's how it felt at the time from the inside. It really did, David. I felt that I really needed a break at the end of my 30s. And I was very, very fortunate to fall pregnant with my son, Thomas. And it just gave me time out. And as a dancer, usually the only time out you get is when you're injured. And that is just never time out. That's, yes. It's, it's the worst period of a dancer's life when you're injured because you know how much it takes to get back to be in peak physical condition. You're not on the stage. You're not where you want to be. You're doing all these endless exercises to get back to fitness, etc. But when I took the time off to have Thomas... I could just enjoy myself. It was an incredible eye-opener and I was very happy. And you know what? As I said in my book, you know, it gave me the opportunity to sit in the audience a little bit and really see what took my eye and, and what I thought was important before my pregnancy and what I realized was important completely changed the way I performed when I returned to the stage I hadn't, I hadn't decided whether or not I'd be able to return. Thomas was going to take first place, but I did miss it. And I felt that I could make it back because I've always had quite an easy body. 
But I decided that if I was going to return to the stage, then I would make the most out of every single role I was done. And I wasn't, although I was going to be as perfect as I could be and work on the roles, I wasn't going to get caught up in the trivialities of one single step. Yes. And there must be something to be said for dancing as if every performance might be the last one ever. It was great. I think it's like Andy Murray, right? Yeah, yeah. Every time he goes out there, he knows this might be the last game. Do you miss that feeling now that you're not performing? Is it easy to give that up? Do you know, I say to everybody, I don't miss performing at all. <laughs> I think because of the pressure I put on myself, I do miss the physicality of it. And it's really not easy to get yourself to the gym when you've retired. <laughs> there are two things I miss from the stage, if I can make a bit of a joke. And one is the fitness it gives you. And two are the flowers that you receive. <laughs> Weird what you take for granted through the profession. So I'm very happy now passing on what I know and giving as much information that I have to the dancers in front of me. And you did explore a slightly different second career because you, you were always interested in property and interior design and you started to explore that. I wondered, is that a totally different skill set, a totally different way of approaching the world or are there transferable skills from dancing? I know everybody's thought I was mad. <laughs> When I was given my first contract with Sadler's Wells, I bought my first apartment. My parents were always very entrepreneurial and my dad used to buy do-up houses and sell them. And I sat by him as he was doing this as a small girl until I left for London. And my mother is an antique dealer. So I'd spend a lot of time in her shop looking at the way she would arrange everything and polishing and, you know, these beautiful objects. So I think it was just in my blood from a young age. Um, I also knew that a dancer's life is not long. I was always very aware of that from a very early age, not knowing how long I would last. Would an injury take me out of the profession? So I cleverly started pursuing on the side of my career another business doing up and selling property. Yeah, And I absolutely love it. It's very similar to uh, working on a ballet. You know, you get the ballet, you then have to work out the steps of the ballet. Then you have to put the paint on the ballet. <laughs> you perform the ballet. It's very similar to that when you're doing up a property, in my opinion. And it's something that, well, has kept me in touch with another, you know, with another side of the world. Yeah. Uh, and I... I loved running from the studio and having my bag of point shoes into a house I was doing up with my paintbrush. <laughs> and perhaps really refreshing as well, suddenly to be out of a world where everyone's talking about who's going to be cast as Juliet or what time re rehearsal is or all of that stuff to people who have no knowledge about that at all. That's right. And I think when you're, particularly in my early days, David, I was in two touring companies. You know, I was with Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet and from there I went on into English National Ballet. So 
for seven years, I was dancing nonstop. So it wasn't as if my recreational time could be going to the theatre. My recreational time was doing something completely different that I could absorb myself in. Listening to you, it's it's really made me aware of how, in some ways as a dancer, you have to grow up really fast. You have to start taking pretty serious responsibility for yourself. You have to be focused. You have to be dedicated, all of that stuff. But at the same time, perhaps the work and the routine can shelter you. And I just wonder, this might be a totally impossible question, Leanne, but do you think you grow up differently because you're a dancer? I think it all depends on where you're dancing, who you're dancing with, who your director is. I think it is very difficult to be going into the workplace at a very, very young age because you're really having to navigate developing and growing up and you're doing that with teachers that may have seen you since you were a very young girl. It is the question I do ask (laughs) is when do dancers grow up? Yeah, It is very difficult when you've been seen and assessed by a lot of the same teachers around you since your youth. I think this is something that helped me getting away. I was with Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet, but then I moved over to English National Ballet. So I was given a fresh start by new coaches and a new eye on me. And I really excelled there because I was with a whole group of people that I'd never known and never met before. I think that's something I I really needed. And from there, I went to Berlin and I was with the Deutsche Oper for, I had a a two-year contract. I stayed for a year and and a bit, which leads into the story of Kenneth McMillan arriving on the doorstep. Tell us about that because he was feeling a bit at a loose end and you were not at your jolliest either. It sounds like in a way it was a perfect fortuitous meeting. It was very fortuitous. Kenneth hadn't been back since he was a director of the company, I believe it was in the 60s. He was due to come and put on a new ballet for us. Um, He had been sick the year before, so it was touch and go whether or not he would arrive. I was in Berlin. I was hoping for a very fresh start. I did get to dance some incredible ballets with a a very wide breadth of new choreography, which was great. Mm -hmm. But there were very, very few performances. And it meant that we spent a lot of time rehearsing, spending a lot of time in the studio with the same people, which is everything against my grain. I want to get out and meet other people. Um, But at a very low point where... I felt that I wasn't, ins- I wasn't really feeling inspired. I, I don't know why. I had some great teachers, but there were only 80 shows a year. And for someone like me, who was at the peak of her powers, I really needed more than that. And yeah. I also felt I needed some stories to tell. I am a storyteller. That's really who I am and what I love doing. It's not who I am, but telling stories is what... I love to do on that stage. But when Kenneth arrived and cast me to my delight as the lead, as Marie and different drummer, 
I could throw myself into an absolutely new world, digging deep, you know, stretching myself. I just stretched myself mentally and physically. And you did, even though your association with Kenneth Macmillan didn't continue for a long time because sadly he died too young. But I wonder if knowing him as a person gives you an insight into the ballets. Oh, definitely, David. He definitely gave me an insight into the ballets. I didn't know him for very long, but I was very fortunate to work on him intensely with different drummer and intensely with Myling, which was fantastic. And I think I started to understand his physicality and the type of movements, and you'll see it in any artist, whether they're a painter or a singer or a, you know, a film star, you will see their personality come through in different roles. But I did understand more about his roles by having that opportunity of working with him. I want to just ask you about working with young dancers. You've been, I know, doing some coaching for what used to be the RAD's Genet competition, but is now called the Fontaine. And of course, you work with, with young dancers more generally. And I wonder how you get the best out of them, given everything you've been talking about today. Are you, in a way, also preparing them to grow up as people as much as looking at tiny points of technique? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, one has to look at the technique, but I suppose, you know, I talk about Kenneth being nosy as a person. <laughs> and I realise now why he was nosy, because you want to get inside someone's head to know how they tick, how they operate, what is it they want, how do they behave. It is almost like being a psychologist, obviously, there are no degrees when you're a teacher, but you do need to get inside of the mindset of a dancer, not just look at their physicality, but look at the whole of them. And when I'm working with a young dancer, I like to ask them, what is it that they want to work on? What are their goals? What are their ambitions? And I do like to talk to them, you know, communication is the key, whether they're six-year-old dancers, 16-year-old dancers, or 46-year-old dancers. Communication is the key. Leanne, I am going to let you go because I have asked many intrusive questions from kangaroos onwards, but I can't do that without asking one final question, which is, why does dance matter to you? Gosh, dance weaves its way through all of our lives. You know, whether that's something that we do or we study or we enjoy. It can be part of the most memorable days of your life. You know, maybe it's the first dance at a wedding or it's the last waltz. But look, it's something you can enjoy in a theatre or that you can watch on TV. You know, maybe you love Fred Astaire or you love to sit back and watch Strictly Come Dancing. Or, you know, you might take it to another level as a dancer, performing anywhere in the world, from the smaller stages, you know, to the largest lyric theatres. And I just think dance 
can inspire, it can provoke, it can educate, and it can excite. And as I say in my book, I was built for ballet, and how lucky I have been that it is my life. Leanne, that's a beautiful place to stop. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, David. I've really enjoyed it. I love the way Leanne's self-knowledge comes through as she speaks and her surprise and sheer pleasure in her new coaching career is delightful. And yes, such a good childhood pet. You can find out more about Built for Ballet, Leanne's book with Sarah Crompton in our show notes and about Leanne's work with The Fontaine. And if anything she says strikes a chord with you, or if you just want to share pictures of your own pets, hoppity or otherwise, I'm at Mr. David J's on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters. As ever, please do subscribe and like the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Our guest today was Leanne Benjamin. Why Dance Matters is made with the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our producer, Sarah Miles, is practically perfect in every way. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon. <laughs>